Florida Angle of Praise. Well, good morning, Carpenter's Way. As you can see, once again, I'm not Chad. I'm Justin. I'm going to be uh, filling in for Chad. But uh, don't let that distract you. We're here for one reason, and that's to worship the King. So if you would, stand on your feet. Uh, greet someone that you haven't seen in a while, and uh, sing along with us when you come back to your seat. Good morning, everybody. That's like a two-minute party. I don't know. Some songs are longer than others. But uh, seeing you hug each other's neck, it's really kind of funny because every week, if uh, usually I'll come up here right before as we're waiting to start, and I'll see somebody going, I didn't know you went here. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, surprise, I've been here for 13 years. Thank you for asking. Anyway, I hope you're having a great week. Is this weather awesome or what? Wasn't the rain even fun unless you had an outdoor party? And I'm sorry that I celebrated, but... Uh, I am so glad to see you here this morning. I have gotten emails from many of you who are watching online. We're glad to have you joining us today. 
And uh, thanks for taking the time out to be with us. We are going to be in 2 Samuel this morning, chapters 8 through 10. And I know that, you know, I've been getting messages on the internet, Heather Terry, saying that you don't think that I can actually, she didn't. She's not the one this time. She was too busy celebrating the Horned Frogs. Did you lose to Ohio State University? Is that what happened? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what this is. This is terrible. But Moody, Moody Bible Institute, we're called the Archers, which makes no sense. And so it's, I guess it's like that. I don't know. And it wasn't you. It was actually Casey uh, Carnley. But I, her husband's leading worship. Your, your wife was dogging me for doing three chapters today. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Hey, take your worship guides. I'm going to highlight a couple things, and then we're going to get back to what we came here to do. Uh, for those of you who have been visiting Carpenter's Way and are interested in learning more about us, or if you want to become a member, you do that uh, uh, four times a year. We have what's called Carpenter's Way 101, or what is Carpenter's Way class. It's a new members class, and it's one Sunday. Starts at 9.30, parallel time to our morning service, ends around 11.45, and it takes place in the library. Uh, we go through the Constitution, our doctrinal statement, how we make leadership decisions, purchase and sale of property, all that stuff. Stuff you need to know to really jump in. It's not so much membership as it is leadership in the church, uh, participating in uh, the functions of, of leadership. And uh, whether you want to become a member or not, if you're interested in more information, that is going to take place on September 23rd. You'll get a chance to meet most of our elders and our staff and uh, and uh, I'll be in there for an hour or so to, uh, during the second hour to go through our doctrinal statement and all. But we want you to be aware of what we believe, why we believe it, how we function. Lots of questions if you're coming from other places. To, uh, so we want you to ask those questions uh, because there's answers to most of them. So uh, please put that on your calendar. I also want to highlight again that we have women's Bible studies upcoming, and that information is in there as, as well several times a week. And... Uh, Men, we have our Tuesday morning gathering from 6, uh, 6.30 to about 7.10, 7.15. Uh, and then uh, Wednesday night where we have Bible studies for people of all ages. Lots of stuff going on we want you to be involved in. Uh, take some time here to read through the worship guide. Um, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our offering. Um, if you're visiting with us, we ask that you not give. This is for those who attend here regularly. Uh, we set a budget every year in November for the following year, January 1st through December 31st. Uh, it is supports, it pays the bills here, takes care of the staff, supports missionaries uh, globally, um, and uh, it's, uh, that's how we do that. And uh, just want to encourage you, if you attend here regularly, be faithful in your giving. And if this is not your home church, we're just glad you're here. We don't want you distracted by money. We, we want you encouraged by the Lord. If you're visiting, I would love to meet you right after the service. I'll be up here when we're done. And, and uh, come on up, and we'll shake your hand and hug your neck and uh, answer questions about the church. Um, but we're glad you're here. Let's now turn our face back to what we came here to do, to worship the Lord, get to know him from his word, sing songs. We appreciate Justin standing in today and leading our worship. Uh, it means a lot that you're willing, brother. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity, the privilege we have to gather every week as a family in this comfortable place. Um, we uh, take for granted all that you have blessed us with. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that... Uh, we would focus on you now uh, for the next hour, that uh, we would learn from you, that we would be encouraged, that we would encourage one another, Lord. Father, we want to know you uh, not from just our experience. We want to know you from your word, that we can measure our experience with the word of God. Uh, we want to be faithful. We want to live our lives in a way that honors you. So I ask that you would help us to do that this morning. I thank you for this text. I thank you for David that was so faithful to you, even in the mundane. And uh, 
Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for those that will give. We pray that you would bless their giving and bless them for giving. Uh, we know that you promised to supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. We now turn the rest of the service over to you and ask you to guide us, direct us, and, and hone our hearts to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
praise him. Follow along with me on the screen. Uh, let's go to uh, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by this great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Let me continue on here for just one second. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see.
I just, I just love the worship. Sometimes I get too excited and I sing the wrong line. And uh, I did that during Thank You for the Cross. And Julie said, you're either on the wrong line or you're way out of tune. <laughs> I choose both. <laughs> did you ever do that? You're singing and you're worshiping, you're thinking about the words, and you look up and you realize nobody else is singing. You all messed up this morning. I just want you to know that. You remember that commercial? It was a few years back. It was a college football, and this guy's, he's playing, you know, he's in a marching band, and he's playing, and all of a sudden, he's going one way, and the band is going the other, but he had a Baby Ruth candy bar, so he felt good. Well, I'm a diabetic, so that ain't even going to help me this morning. But I'm, I appreciate you, that last song. Beautiful, beautiful. Y'all messed up on the one before it, but uh, I want to start uh, this morning by looking at a super familiar verse. We, we talk about it, I, I throw it up there a lot, and I, and I want you to think about it, because it really sets the tone for the three chapters I'm going to get done with in 10 minutes here this morning, just to make a point. Uh, my <laughs> Micah 6, 8, I, I want you to look at this with me. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Within the family of God, there are certain verses that we like a lot, that are very familiar, that we like to throw around at each other, and, and it's, they're great verses. That's why, that's why we like to throw them at each other. The problem is that they're so common to us, they're so, we're so used to hearing these verses that they kind of lose their power in our lives. And this is one of those. And so um, I, I want you to look at it. This is probably the, the version you're most familiar with. It's the NIV. Some of us grew up in the King James. It reads just like the NIV. What does the Lord require of you? Pretty powerful word there, require. Uh, the, uh, if, if, uh, I know most of you don't read Greek. Most of you don't know Hebrew, if any in this church. Uh, one way for you to know what the original languages say is to use more than one version of the Bible, mo the modern versions, uh, and parallel, parallel them. Man, some words, the word require is in all, all the modern versions. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with your God? It is a significant verse because often we kind of go, God, what do you expect from me? What is it you want from me? What is it you require of me as your child? If you ask the average churchgoer today uh, what they think the Lord expects of them, they would say more prayer, uh, they would say more fasting more time in the word, that would make God on his throne smile. I mean, he doesn't require anything because I'm his child, but, but boy, if I could do those spiritual things, I'd have more spiritual power. I would feel closer to him. And I'd like to say that while all of those things are good and should be part of the healthy Christian uh, disciplines uh, in a Christian's life, this verse actually tells us straight up what he requires of us in this life. You know, in the New Testament, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 to walk worthy of our calling. Uh, 1 Thessalonians tells us to keep, keep active, keep serving the Lord. It's clear in the Gospels that our first and primary responsibility is to believe in the Lord and trust Him. But this actually tells us that there is a requirement of our life. And it is clear to act justly, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with God. And, and, and nobody would disagree with that here, but, but that's one of those things we kind of go, what does that look like? What does that mean? I have, uh, over the last few months or a year, I've appreciated a lot of the feedback uh, you've given me on our recent study of 
of Ruth and then first and second Samuel and I even had some tell me a couple people tell me this week that they they really don't want us to end with second Samuel they'd like me to go into Kings and at least to get to Solomon um, historically speaking we're really close to the nation of Israel ceasing to exist and by ceasing to exist where we are historically and by ceasing to exist what I mean by that is that the Jews have always been around but you realize that when Jesus is born about a thousand years after David's reign um, and I was corrected last week by someone, and they were right. I said about seven or eight generations later, it's actually 30-some generations between David and Jesus. I misspoke. That's what happens when I'm not thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking about singing the wrong note. Um, but uh, the, the truth is that 30-some generations, Jesus is born. Well, it's only, uh, t I want to say, two generations later that the nation of Israel as a united whole actually ceases to exist. After David, Solomon takes the reign. That's Bathsheba's son. Solomon takes the reign and he rules for a few years and, and the kingdom is strong. But he takes his eyes off, off the ball, this wise guy. He takes his eyes off of the Lord. And, and then his sons, after his death, his sons take over. And they divide the kingdom into four different directions. The northern, the southern kingdom, and they split into two more kingdoms. And, and basically the, the nation never really comes back together. Even to this day, you're still in that, you're still watching as the nation struggles. Until the 60s, there was no... Um, there was no nation united land owning group of people and, uh, and we're not far from that so there is a temptation and, and you can email me or text me if you'd like but there is a temptation to keep going into Kings to show you what happens because it's fascinating and I, I, like I said I've heard from a lot of you and you're enjoying this study and, uh, and we're, not, we're not really that far from, from, from finishing what happens to the nation and it would be kind of an interesting conversation for us to do that so, so if, if you're interested in that let me know and we can, we can just keep going a bit farther but this, these verses that I have drilled into your heads that's on the screen this morning, I know it's not from 2 Samuel, but I want you to understand that the next three chapters, these three chapters that I'm going to do in two and a half minutes, actually, chapter 8, 9, I don't know what you're laughing at, but chapters 8, 9, and 10 actually show you what that looks like. In chapter 8, you're going to see David doing his job as king and acting justly. And, and I want you to really listen to what we're going to discover together about this, because I think a lot of us have the Christian life wrong. I think that with good hearts, we have forgotten that the Christian life on the earth, the life that is lived for God, an Old Testament saint as well as a New Testament saint, because of what happened in the garden, it is not to make you feel good. It is not a rush. It is the grind of daily faithful walking with God. And there's a lot of us looking for a bigger, better experience because we're frankly bored with our lives. We're bored. And Satan takes that and he takes our eyes off of the Lord and puts it on ourself by telling us we need a rush. To do justly, you're going to see that in chapter 8. Then you're going to see in chapter 9, King David, while acting justly as the king, he's going to show mercy under the authority that he is capable of showing mercy. He shows mercy. And then in chapter 10, you're going to look down. You're going to look on David as he humbly walks with God in unexpected circumstances. That's what happens in these three chapters. And I would argue of all the chapters in 2 Samuel, these are the ones that you want to read fastly through because they don't have David and Goliath. You don't have all the stuff that we think is so sexy. But I want to tell you something. I actually believe that these three chapters tell the difference between a man who is on a rush for God. Saul constantly called out to God in these, these huge emotional moments, these big battles he would call out to God. And we all understand that. But boy, David stays faithful when life is boring. David stays faithful when he's fighting battles. David stays faithful when he's, when he's king. And I, and I got to tell you, we live in a culture today, and I know most of you will agree with this. We live in a culture today where that, that, that traditional faithfulness, that just being that, that consistent parent, 
who raises their kid, it's not well looked at. We're all looking for a rush. We all want that two-hour movie experience. We have marriages falling apart in our culture simply because husbands and wives are bored with each other. And now that their kids are grown and out of the house, they want a second round of love. Oh, I get it. But it's a, it, it's, it's a drug. It's a, it's a lie. We are, we are downplaying faithfulness and upplaying experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's creeping into the church or maybe not crept into the church. It's a, it's a struggle we always have. So this speaks to that this morning. So stick with me as we go through these texts because I think at the end, if you'll stay with me, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's right. I, in fact, I know you will because that's what happened to me this week. So let's pray. God, we ask you to meet with us today. We ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us. I pray that you would, you would help my words be seasoned with grace but measured in truth. Uh, we we want to speak, we want to learn from you from the word, not read into the word what we hoped you to be like. So uh, teach us about a faithful life. Teach us what it looks like to do justly, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with you, and then help us to see that in our own world. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 begins with after this. So before I jump more into that, after what? Well, after Saul's death. After taking over the leadership of all 12 Hebrew tribes. After taking control of Jerusalem and building her up into a great capital city of the Hebrew nation. After the, moving the Ark of the Covenant into a tent in the middle of the city outside of his palace. After a season of peace for the nation and being told by God that he would not be allowed to build a temple, but his son would. After this, David defeated and subdued the Philistines by conquering Gath, their largest town, west of Jerusalem. David also conquered the land of Moab. He made the people lie down in the ground in a row, and he measured them off in groups with a length of rope. He measured off two groups to be executed for every one group to be spared. The Moabites who were spared became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. That's everyone to the east. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. How is that good? How is that God's justice? Um, actually, it shows mercy. A lot of times when they went in, they killed everybody. I know that doesn't make you feel good, but David had a job to do, and it was to be the king. Verse 3, David also destroyed the forces of Habadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. When Habadezer marched out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River, David captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He crippled all the chariot horses except enough for 100 chariots. For those of you who are animal lovers, that just broke your heart. Verse 5, when the Arameans from Damascus arrived to King uh, Habadezer, uh, David killed 22,000 of them. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus in the Aramean city or capital. And the Arameans became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. That's everyone south of Jerusalem. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. The Lord made him victorious wherever he went. David brought the gold shields of Habadazer's officers to Jerusalem along with a large amount of bronze from Habadazer's towns to Teba and Barothai. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had destroyed the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to congratulate King David for his successful camp campaign. Hadadezer and, his, and Toy had become enemies and were often at war. Joram presented David with many gifts of silver, gold, and bronze. King David dedicated all of these gifts to the Lord as he did with the silver and gold from other nations he had defeated, from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, and Amalek. And from Habadezer, son of Rohab, Rehob, king of Zobah. Verse 13. 
So David became even more famous when he returned from destroying 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. <laughs> You're looking at me like when you read this. What is going on? Lots of death. I want to remind you that in chapter 7, as we looked at last week, that God had promised David that he would make him famous in the Davidic covenant. He said, I'll make you famous, David, because that's what I've chosen. You're going to be the father of this nation, and through you, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to take the throne forever. And he promised him he'd make him famous. Verse 14, he placed, David placed army garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. I want to remind you that in chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant, God promised that he would make him victorious in military battles. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to him. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all of his people. Joab, son of Zerai, was commander of the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was the royal historian. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abathar, was the priest, were the priests. Sarai was the court secretary. Benai, son of Jehoiada, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. He's the king's bodyguard. And David's sons served as priestly leaders. Why is this even in here? We all know that there's wars and battles that are being fought, but why would God take precious onion leaf and black ink and put it on in the Bible? And it's because of the middle, that verse 18, or in 8, verse 15. David reigned over all of Israel and did what was just and right for all his people. David's job, his God-given job, his calling, his task was to be the king of the Hebrew nation. That was his job. His job was to beat the enemies of the Hebrew nation, to make peace and prosperity available to his people, and to establish a just and fair leadership under his authority as he himself sat under God. I know that we live in a time where there's a lot of people in this country and in this world who think there should be no borders, but that's not how God felt. Not about his people. God felt that, that, that they would own that land. God had promised it. He was going to introduce himself to this nation, and David would be his king at this time. And so that's what David did. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's not about the names. It's not about understanding the wars. It's not even figuring out why certain nations were defeated. Some of them had been declared enemies of God. Some of them should have been defeated before by kings, but were not because of unfaithfulness or by the generals. But the truth is, what you need to understand is what David did was act justly by establishing not only dominance militarily, but even a strong, healthy government for the nation, which included military leaders, historic and academic leaders, religious leaders, a judicial system, and even a protective police force. That's all mentioned in this chapter. David reigned over all of Israel and did what was just and right for all of his people. This is what that looks like. Church, I, I really want you to grasp this. I understand that as you go through the Old Testament, there are things in this book that you don't like, that I don't like, that crosses us uh, emotionally and morally. Oh, there's so much death. And, and I like David the shepherd better than David the warrior. But the fact is, they were both part of his calling. Uh, spiritually speaking, a deeper walk, a deeper meaning to a, uh, to a text, um, learning the secrets of God, learning to pray victoriously is a billion-dollar industry in our country. 
It's just not always true. In fact, a lot of stuff is made up. I mean, you can take a verse here and there and you can make a story about it, but the truth is that Scripture within its context will lead you to truth. And this, is, this chapter, it is so important that you understand what David is doing here because it's not, for him it was being king, for, but for you it's about being a parent or a teacher or an entrepreneur or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is you do. There's a lot of us who think that God is only found in the spiritual high moments of our life, and that just isn't true. That's why they're spiritual high moments. If they were all like that, they'd be called plateaus. The truth is David's life is not summarized by beating Goliath and, and, and hiding in caves for a couple of weeks and then becoming king and then having, you know, uh, uh, sinning with Bathsheba. That, that's not, those, those, are, those are moments of his life, but the rest of his life, of all the years that David lived, they were, they were living, a man who lived faithfully, uh, doing God-given tasks that others look on, and even some of you probably look on and go, that just doesn't sound like a godly life to me. Well, it's not yours to decide. David had a responsibility that probably to him was a drag. And I want you to think in light of the context because what David wanted to do in the previous two chapters, bring the Ark of the Covenant that hadn't been there between, for 75 to 100 years into Jerusalem so the people could worship in the capital city, and then uh, wanting to build a temple before the Lord, those are things David wanted to do that we would all hail as great, great religious programming, great servanthood, and both of those things God said no to. God defines David in this text as a just and right leader while he's doing these things that couldn't have been fun. We look at, we look at this text, or we, we might look at this text, some of you, and you say, I don't even get why it's in here. Where's the spiritual stuff? This isn't the good stuff. This isn't the good relationship with God stuff that's just, that I want to emulate. But what if this is what a man after God's own heart actually looks like? What if this is what nine out of ten days looks like for the man or woman of God? What if simply doing what God says in his word where is required of you honors him and that brings a smile on his face more than fasting? What if doing justly means doing your job, performing your task, whether it be the king of a Hebrew nation or the principal of a school or a mom of two out-of-control, crazy East Texas kids or a dad who coaches his kid's, store or, or kids, kids sports team or a cop? What if that is your task? What if doing justice in that job, performing your duty the best of your ability and your resources is, is what pleases God? What if doing justly by God's definition, not man's feelings, is actually reigning over your responsibilities faithfully, consistently, rather than, rather than going to Africa or preaching on a Sunday or having some spiritual, personal experience? What if a faithful man or woman of God is the guy who who just does their job, or the woman who just does her job, even when everything seems stacked against them? What if Satan's most powerful tool in our lives as Christians is to keep us unsettled and even bored and feeling unfulfilled, rather than to see our lives as a calling, as a sacrifice? And the people God placed around us actually is our ministry, not people who are keeping us from ministry. I know how some people feel because it a lot of folks come in my office and they often feel, you know, my kids are keeping me too busy to minister. 
or my job is taking too much of my time to minister, but what if raising children isn't a curse, it's a blessing, or it's actually your responsibility? What if teaching school isn't a curse or something you have to do to make enough money to feed your family, but it's actually your responsibility given to you by God? Was being a curse, a, uh, being king a curse to David, or was it his task? What if Satan can get us to misread our ministry by looking at it as boring, normal life, somehow less valuable than a short-term mission trip? What if God placed you actually in your ministry field? What if the people you come in contact with that drive you the must, uh, drive you the nuts most? You know that old joke. I'd be great if the people if I didn't work with the people I work with or work for the people I work for. What if that's your mission field, just like it was David's in chapter eight? Th this uh, there's probably only one thing worse than just reading this. It was probably living this. This had to be rough day in and day out. And how do I know that? Because David wants to move the, 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 uh, the Ark of the Covenant in. He wants to build a tabernacle. Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. But when you're bored, you start looking for stuff to do that God doesn't necessarily ask you to do. And remember, that's what he said to him last week. You see, none of these stories are in a vacuum. They all fit within a context. And the author, God, and his human writer wants us to understand that between all the great stories here, there's some really important mundane stories that actually make David a man after God's own heart. And I think sometimes the church and its leadership is so busy hyping you, trying to get you motivated and trying to get you to do the next big thing and give more money and all this, that we actually remove the most important things in your life, and that is just serving day in and day out as a man or woman of God in your little tiny corner, making you feel somewhat less because you don't have a huge audience. But are two children or one child less important than 50,000 other people? God loves your kids. He loves the kids in your class. He loves the nurse, the doctors you work around. He loves the people you come in contact with, and he's willing to use your health in order to put you in proximity of them. And sometimes we look at that and we go, yeah, but that's not, that's not the exciting stuff. What if it is to God? Will you still serve? Will we still serve? Of David, God said this in 2 Samuel 8.15, so David reigned over all of Israel and did what was just and right for all of his people. What's required of us is to do justly first. Some of you are going to vote this year. And some of you are going to vote left and some of you are going to vote right. Be convinced in your heart what the right thing is to do and vote. It's doing justly. Well, my vote doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't vote. Well, it doesn't matter if I do. You still do it because it's the right and just thing to do. Serve on a jury. I hate serving on a jury. It's an inconvenience. Still our job. It's what we do. And it honors God. Pay your inflated taxes. I don't like what I get for it. Jesus took a tax token out of a fish's mouth to pay his taxes. He didn't say, you can't make me pay. Do justly. It honors God. David did justly by fulfilling his responsibility as king. Very boring, but honoring to God. But it appears to honor God more in, uh, than just doing justly. 
because in chapter 9 it tells us something else. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Mercy. He did justly, and while he's doing justly, he looks for somebody to show mercy from, somebody under his authority. So he summoned a man named Ziba, not the character on NCIS, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am. Uh, I almost said she. Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Why is that significant in the story? Because what David is about to do would never be done to a crippled person. I want to remind you that in a Hebrew nation, if somebody had leprosy, skin issues, was crippled, it was, pre it was pretty much assumed that they had sinned. And so they would not only not have access usually to the throne room of God, uh, to, the, uh, to the, uh, the temple court, but they also wouldn't have access to the king. Where is he, the king asked in verse 4. In uh, Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Emil. So David sent for him. I'm laughing at all these names because I'm terrible at them. So David sent for him and brought him from Akir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. I've practiced that for three weeks. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. You know why David told him not to be afraid, right? Because he was afraid. He's not sure if his head's going to be cut off. I intend to show con kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show this, such kindness to a dead dog like me? Remember the definition of mercy we, we often throw around here? It is not getting what you do deserve. Mephibosheth acknowledges that he deserves to die because of his father, because of his grandfather. Mephibosheth thinks that he's not worthy of living. He's probably been hiding out. David didn't even know if he was alive. He had to go searching for him. And now that he's been brought to the king, he's pretty sure he's going to be, be killed. And in fact, David shows mercy to this guy, and he's blown away. Verse 9, then king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. That's a lot of stuff. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth was also crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem, and ate regularly at the king's table. Keeps pointing out the crippled thing, and the reason is, is because it's shocking. Culturally, that was shocking. That's what mercy looks like. He's doing justly as he's fighting battles, and even in the midst of all that, he can do more than one thing at a time. While he's out there fighting battles, he's also showing mercy to people. While doing the just thing, fulfilling responsibilities as a king, he shows mercy and grace to Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. He brings him into his own house, gives him all of his family's wealth, and lets him eat at his table, just like God has done for us. Just like God has done for us. While God is running his universe, he looks down at us and draws us to himself. And he lets us eat at his table. And he tells us to keep our eyes, not looking back, but looking forward. Not looking at what was, but what is to come. And he tells us to, to, to put our hope 
and our wealth and our value system on what is coming, not what has been. God has brought us into his house as family, and he will share with all of us his wealth, and we will eat at his table forever. One of the first things we do as a family in heaven is eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will enjoy the same mercy and grace that David shows. We will, we will see it. As David did justly, he showed mercy and love of God to others, me, not merely in word, but also in deed. We're not merely required to do justly. And this is especially important in a political time. The reason we do justly is because it honors our Lord, not because it saves a nation. We do justly because we live differently. We are the children of the Most High God. He's a God of order, not chaos. And we do justly, not because it's the easiest thing, but because it's the right thing. And we don't live for our own pleasure, or we're not supposed to. We, we live steady and consistent, faithful lives, doing the jobs God has given us for His honor, for His sake, whether people recognize it or not. And we show mercy to people who can't respond to it because that's what God has done for us. I encourage you to do that. Maybe you're wondering where you can show mercy. We're here to help. We've got Operation Christmas Child coming up. I want to tell you that not only you wrestle with that, but we wrestle with it as leaders as a church family. One of the things that uh, I am, if, if you are not conservative politically, I have told you in the past that I am, so I need you to bear with me. I am, this is Mark Wilkie's opinion, citizen of the United States of America, not Pastor Mark. I want to separate me. I know I'm a broken person, but I'm conservative politically. I think a nation without walls or, or have boundaries, you, you, you can't have order. Having said that, there are genuine refugees all over this world that need our love and our encouragement and somehow our ministry. And as elders of this church, we wrestle with that. And it was Robert Grimes, who's our pastor of missions, came to me a year ago and said, we got to do something about refugees. What are we going to do? We didn't have an answer. I know he's been praying about it, and I've prayed it about it a few times. Lord, open the door. And about three months ago, Kevin Hudson came to us and said, you know what? You know who's having a bigger refugee problem than America? Is Brazil. And he shared, he shared with uh, uh, Robert and I and then the mission investment team that they're being inundated in Brazil with Venezuelan refugees. And we're not talking just poor folks. We're talking doctors and lawyers who, who no longer can work there. And they're moving to Brazil. And the churches that we partner with in Brazil for mission work, Presbyterian churches, are struggling because they're getting thousands of people in. And their people are willing to serve these refugees within the laws of the country, but they don't have the resources. And so this last week, we decided to take some of the money that you give and give $6,000 towards for these churches to help them minister. And if you want to do something for refugees, whether you're conservative politically or liberal, we'll put you on a plane. There's work to be done. I don't know what that looks like. Nobody's gone yet. But there is work to be done. And I want to say to my conservative brothers and sisters, and I, I put myself in your group, it's not enough just to build a wall. You've got to minister to people. That is our obligation. We've got to minister. I, I, I believe we've got to be wise as a nation. But we are also in a calling to show mercy as the children of God. Agreed? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote conservatively. That's my vote. And I, I, again, please... Don't get all upset if, if, if you don't think that's compassion. I respect your right to vote however you want. You know that. We're not a political thing. I just this morning, I wanted to make it clear that, that, that showing mercy means going beyond, beyond what we think is just rhetoric to actually looking for people that we can help. We've got to do both. 
As a citizen of this country, you make the best decisions you can when you vote. And as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you look over your vote and you help people. Does that make sense? That's what David's doing here. He, ha he was under no obligation except the commitment he made to Jonathan, even to Saul, not to kill his family. And he's a man of mercy, so he goes out searching. David didn't even know where this kid was, and he goes looking for him. Is anybody left? Wasn't even sure anybody was alive. That's what it looks like to, to be merciful. Be merciful. Do justly. Vote. Speak your mind with grace. But you've got to show mercy, too. That's what we do. Chapter 10. You know, walk humbly with God. <laughs> Sometime after this, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun became king. David said, I'm going to show you, I want you to, I want you to pay attention, engage your brain on what David's about to do, and watch what happens. I'm about to show loyalty to Hanun, just as his father Nahash was always loyal to me. So David sent ambassadors to express sympathy to Hanun about his father's death. David was not seeking war. David was sending an entourage of people to say, I'm so sorry that your dad died. Hey, let's be buds like your dad and I were. But when David's ambassadors arrived in the land of Ammon, the Ammonite commander said to Hunan, uh, Hunan, now you know why I eat Chinese food, Hanun, their master, do you really think these men are coming here to honor your father? No, David has sent them to spy out the city so they can come and conquer it. So Hanun seized David's ambassadors, shaved uh, uh, off half each other, uh, each, sorry, let me try this again. He seizes David's ambassadors and shaved uh, off half of each man's beard and cut off their robe, uh, robes at the fanny and sent them back to David in shame. That is not very nice. And that's not at all what he expected. It's exactly what you think. So, um, you know, there's an old saying that said, uh, some people feel like no good deed ever goes unpunished. <laughs> that's what this looks like. I mean, they show up and these guys are like, hey, David has sent us and we want you to know we're sorry about your dad's passing and your dad and David were good friends and we had peace. Let's do that. And they end up shaving these guys and cutting off two round circles on the back of their gowns. That's what they did. For the sake of humiliating them. Now let me give you some idea, because I know you watch the news and you see what goes on in the Middle East. The whole beard thing, and it's not just there, it's here too. Um, but the whole beard thing is because the culture is extremely modest. And, they, and, and the men want to cover as much of their bodies as they can, and so they let their hair grow out. To shave a guy's head, and then on top of it to make two circles in the back for their buns to hang out, that is like stripping them naked and telling them to go home. This is not good. It's humiliating. It's the worst. Next to killing them, it might have been better for them to kill him. Um, so they send him back to David with shame. Verse 5. When David heard what had happened, he sent messengers to tell them, stay in Jericho until your beards grow out and then come back. Because of the shame that would have been on these guys, they were just doing the king's biddings. And, and I'm sure somewhere in there he gave them new, new gowns too or, or patches. The patch would probably be just as humiliating as the rest. I think I've done good so far at keeping it clean in this room. This is not good. This is bad. So he's done justly. He's done mercy, just like you. And this is the reward he gets for it. I, I want you to realize that his life is just like yours. No, you're not out killing people, nor should you be. But you are doing your deal. And you're showing mercy sometimes. And now, hey, I got a good thing. Finally, something that doesn't deal with war. I'm going to send you guys to go make peace and your guys come back beardless and backside naked. 
He had to be thinking, what's up with that? They felt great shame because of their appearance. Verse 6, when the people of Ammon realized how seriously they had angered David, they sent and hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers, mercenary, from the lands of Beth Rehob and Zobah, a thousand from King Mecca, and 12,000 from the land of Tob. So they don't even make it right. Oops, we were wrong. They don't, hey, sorry, David, here are their gowns. We've taken the little pieces of cloth we cut and we sent it back to you. They don't do that. They, they prepare for war. When David hears about this, oy, he sends Joab and all of his warriors to fight them. The Ammonite troops come out and drew up their battle li uh, lines at the entrance of the city gate. While the Arameans from Zebah and Rehob and the men from Tob and Mecca position themselves to fight in the open fields. David has to be thinking, what in the heck is going on here? This is not where I wanted to fight. I wanted peace with these people. And it gets worse. When Joab saw that he would have to fight on both the front and the rear, no pun intended, he chose some of Israel's elite troops. That wasn't funny. I thought it was. It worked really good in my notes. He chose some of Israel's elite troops, and he places them under his personal command to fight the Arameans in the fields. He left the rest of the army under the command of his brother Abishai, who was to attack the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, then come over and help me, jo Joab told his brother. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Now listen to this, verse 12. Be courageous. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. In case you're not clear, the reason he ends this way is because he's not sure they're going to win. They're outnumbered, they're outflanked, they're surrounded, and he's doing the best he can. He takes, he takes some of the elite warriors himself to fight on the backside, no pun intended, these guys, and he's going to leave the rest to find the Ammonites and the city face on. You ever think to yourself, hey, I've done the first two of these three. I've done justly. I do mercy. I'm not a bad person. I care for folks, especially the downtrodden. I battle every time I go by a homeless person, whether to hand them a $20 bill, whether they're going to use it right. What is going on? God, I deserve a little something here. And this is when Satan attacks. This is when Satan starts getting you to go, you know, the problem is you're not faithful enough. The problem is if you fasted more. If you only prayed more, you need to volunteer more for the kingdom. Actually, you need to speak uh, in, uh, I don't know what. He just starts lying to you, and you start thinking that you're the problem. And I want to be clear, David's not the problem here. Life is the problem. You see, when we left the Garden of Eden, when we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, when God put an angel there so we couldn't re-enter the Garden of Eden, life got out of control. That's how this thing plays out. He's left us here to tell others that there's hope in God. Not hope in this life, but one of the scary things that's going on right now in our culture, especially the Christian culture, and it's probably been going on for quite a while, but it's in feverish pitch now with, with uh, the internet and Facebook, and you can hear any wacko preacher you want on the internet now. Anybody who's got a, a video camera can put themselves up and you start thinking they're important. But I gotta tell you something. There's a movement in the church today, and it is now moving its way even through the evangelical church that says you should not only... You should not only uh, be faithful, you should experience joy and the wealth of God and anything you want. And I'm here to tell you that was not David's experience. That is not David's experience. David's experience was being faithful in the face of the battle, in the face of being in a cave for 15 years. God said to David, trust me, don't kill the king. Trust me, don't take this into your own hands. That's what's going on here. David does nothing. He's doing justly, he's doing what kings do. He's taking care of their enemies. 
He's living uh, mercifully. He's showing mercy to a guy he didn't even know was alive. And this is the result. He sends a party. He has to be thinking, what's going on? Verse 13. When Joab and his troops attacked, the Arameans began to run away. And when the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were running, they ran from Abishai and retreated into the city. After the battle was over, Joab returned to Jerusalem. You all think, oh, that's the end of the story. It's not. It was a good day. But the Arameans now realized that they were no match for Israel. So when they regrouped, they were joined by an additional Aramean troop summoned by Habadazar from the other side of the Euphrates River. These troops arrived at uh, Helam under the command of Shebak, the commander of Habadazar's forces. I keep saying that so you won't notice that I'm messing up the B's and the D's. Verse 17, when David heard what was happening, so now David's going, we beat them. Yeah, well, they went across the river, regrouped, hired more people, brought the king in, and now they're fighting again. David has to go, what? Does no good deed go unpunished? What is going on? When he heard what was happening, after saying, oi, and, it, and lamenting to his many wives that he's too busy for this, that there's other stuff that needs to be done, they got a festival coming up, we're too busy for all this junk, he mobilizes all of Israel. He crosses the Jordan River, and he led personally the army to Helam. The Arameans positioned themselves in battle formation and fought against David. But again, the Arameans fled from the Israelites. This time, David's forces killed 700 charioteers, 40,000 foot soldiers, including Shobach, the commander of their army. When all the kings allied with Habadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they surrendered to Israel and became their subjects. After that, the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. Yeah, I'll bet. Now, look, it's a lot of names. It's a lot of battle. It's a lot of boredom. It's not David defeating Goliath. It's just, it's just the daily life of a king. That's all this is. That's what it looks like to be a king. And you know what it looks like to be a mom of two, te two, two boys? Doesn't matter their age. It's frustrating and scary and out of control. And I, I was better than this. Or to be a teacher. The state doesn't want to fund my retirement. What is going on? Or to be a lawyer. It's the people I work with that are the problem. I've done justly, I've loved mercy. But life is like this. We can lie to each other and say that only if I do better good. The, the problem with the prosperity gospel message is that they too die. <laughs> Every one of them. Even people who believe in it still go broke. Under a self-proclaimed faithfulness to God, it happens because life is boring and painful and disappointing and a lot of times, no good deed goes unpunished. You know that. That's your experience. But we're told that it is required of us as his people to do justly anyway and to love mercy and to humbly walk with God. Do you know why we're instructed to humbly walk with God and not just walk with God? The whole idea is that he's before you and you're following him. That's what it is. I, I mentioned it before. I love Larry Brevard, who's watching on the internet this morning because he's not feeling well, has a saying. Put your eyes on the back of your rabbi and don't take them off of him. I love that. That's actually what Hebrews 12 says. 
Don't let the sin that so easily entangles wrap itself around you. Instead, cast it off by putting your eyes on Jesus. You put your eyes on the back of his head. And where he leads you is sometimes to green pastures and wonder, and other times it's through the valley of the shadow of death. David said that too, didn't he? And maybe it's, in your experience, it's more in the valley of the shadow of death than, you know, in a green pasture. They're both gods, and he's leading us. But he tells us to humbly walk with God. And the reason is this is because of what James 4 says. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and, and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. David's like, hey, boys, we're going to send you over there on a peace plan. You're going to go over and you're going to minister to those people. You're going to tell them we're sorry their dad died, blah, blah, blah. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we'll live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own plans and all such boasting is evil. I mean, when... The truth is that there's nothing wrong with making plans. That's not what Scripture says. There's nothing wrong with setting your course. There's nothing wrong with starting a business. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make a billion dollars as long as you give 52% to the church. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Just kidding. There's nothing wrong with that. I have plans, you have plans. I have dreams, you have dreams. We all have, and we, and we want the dreams to go as smoothly as we dream them. But we all know that they often don't. They often just don't. Because all of us are kings of some little nation could be the business, it could be your section of a business company, uh, it could be your family, and you know, people don't often play by your dreams and plans, most especially God. The truth is you set your plans, but you've got to remind yourself that to humbly walk with God is to understand that if the Lord wants us to do this, we'll do that, or if the Lord wants, doesn't it? We, we, we always give it back to Him, even Jesus prayed that. It's not humble to be confident in your own plans, because we have no idea what life and God has in store for us from moment to moment any given day, no matter how good our intentions or plans are. Remember, we're not our own. We have been bought with a price. God will glorify himself through us. And you know this truth. Because Ephesians 2, this is another passage I throw out there, and I want you to take a deep breath, and I want you to think on this as I read it to you. Look at it with me. God saved you by his grace when you believed, right? You get that? Mine wrapped around that? I remember when I got saved. I was 15, I was 6, I was, I was 32. You can remember, I want you to think of the time you got saved. When you believe, God saved you by his grace. The irony is you can't take credit for it. It was a gift that he gave you. He purchased it and he offered it to you. Salvation is not a reward for good things you've done. None of us can boast about it. Now the next verse. And, and, and you know this verse, but I, I want to I set some context because, again, modern Christianity has made this about your appearance. You are God's masterpiece, young lady, so you're beautiful in his eyes. That's not what this is saying. This is not about self-esteem. This is not about how you feel about your life. This is how God is working and feels about your life. For we are God's masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. He did the work. He did the recreating. He did the tooling. He did the tapestry. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? And it answers the question, why are we still here? Christians often ask that. This fallen world is evil. America's getting worse. The world is going to persecute believers. Why doesn't God just take us home? And here's the answer, because there's still good things that he planned for us to do. For David, it was to rule a kingdom, which would involve fighting other nations. 
And you know, I could have I this week uh, taken each of these apart and we could have talked and it would have been fine and, and I could have given you reasons why God wanted the Ammonites defeated and why God wanted the, you know, Haberdasherites or whoever, <laughs> whoever these people are. Why did he, I could have I tried to explain it. We could have put a maps on the board. But you know what? I don't always understand God's plan and neither do you. We could explain it away and we could try to explain it away, but sometimes he's God and we're not and we just have to be okay with that. In fact, I'd like to say most of the time we have to be that because God has not involved us in his trinity of thought. He has told us what he's told us from his word and then asked us if we will simply, well, Matthew 16, 24. Read it. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. Mark didn't say that. Your favorite prophet, your favorite pastor, your favorite bishop may not be saying that, but that's what Jesus said. And I know we get pick up your cross and follow him. We kind of blow that off. We all wear little crosses, wonderful things, but, but do you realize it says deny yourself? That includes your right for a spiritual rush all the time. That's really hard to live with, but that's what Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to really come after me, you want to be like me, you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. This, this wasn't a camp theme. This was real things. And he didn't stop there. Paul understood it so much that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after telling us how we get saved, he wrote this. I beg of you, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy... What's the word? We all know what a sacrifice is. It's not a self-fulfilling, self-happy thing. It means laying on the altar. It means doing what Isaac did when Abraham said, God's sacrificing you. It means, okay, God. And you do it because you know, you know that his plans in the end are going to be better. Not maybe for you now, but better than you trust him. How could I say that? Because that's what 8, 9, and 10 are about. Chapter 9 is kind of cool because he ministers to this guy he doesn't know. We're all into that. But chapter 8, David doesn't, you know, we know that David's a man of war, but he doesn't seem to enjoy it. He just wins all the time. And why did he win? Not because he was great at it, but because God said he would win. He was faithful as a king. And then in chapter 9, you see his mercy, and you get a sense from his psalms that he really enjoys being merciful. Actually, he actually is a, a, a better at, at, at rooting for the, for the little guy, and you're going to see that now as we keep going. We're going to get into Bathsheba next week and other things. But you'll actually find as we keep going that David is much more kind and merciful to the little guy than he even is faithful to God. Interesting thing to look at. He's a better, he's a better fighter for the small guy, a Robin Hood, than he is even a dad. We'll look at that. I want you to understand that David was probably a very, very disappointed little man. And if you, if you don't know it, Jesus Christ, Isaiah said, was a man of many sorrows. Jeremiah didn't like his task at all. He was called the weeping prophet, mocked and then identified himself as such. Elijah was depressed after he calls down fire from Mount Carmel. Why? Because the truth is not accepted by the lost. And it's hard. And we're mocked and not understood. You can't give enough away or put enough smiles on the truth to make people who reject the truth like it. The truth is, faithfulness to God is being a, a holy sacrifice. More than fasting, he, he wants your trust. He wants you to keep going. And, and I want to say something this morning. I'm not dogging you today. I'm not saying you're not being faithful enough. I'm saying take a breath and realize that the battles that you're fighting right now are the right battles.
it's okay. I know you're scared. I get scared too. I know you want to feel good. Some of you are struggling with anxiety. I get it. It's been in my family. Julie really struggled with it. She's been honest about it before. I asked her yesterday, what, what helped you overcome as we're painting? I can hardly walk today. Apparently, I'm not in good shape. I know I look good, but... Um, and she said she just took her eye. Eventually, she, a lot of stuff, but eventually she had to take her eyes off herself and realize that God didn't promise her the things that she expected from him. That he will give that to her in the future, but for now, he's gonna, she's going to have to trust him. And, and that was the beginning of defeating deep anxiety. Anxiety is being disappointed that your three-year-old acts like your three-year-old. It just is. And as you get older, your body's going to fail. And that's, that's a bummer. I painted the last two days, and my body is failing. That's how bad a shape I'm in at 51. Some of you just went, well, you're older than I thought. I know. I look really good. Look, God redeemed you by his grace. He invited you to his table by his mercy. He loves you so much. It has nothing to do with what you've done, how good you are, or even how faithful you are. It has everything to do with how good he is and how merciful he is and how faithful he is. So I did all this this morning to wrap up with something really stupid. Just keep going. Keep going. What does he require of you in 2018? Have you been to Hobby Lobby? It's almost Christmas. It is almost here. Hallmark Channel is already advertising their Christmas movies. 33 brand new movies this year. Same exact story, same music, same actors, different scenery. And we're going to watch every one of them. I, I, I know. But this is what it is. He has shown you what is good and what he requires of you. Just do justly. Oh, look for ways to show mercy. And when things go the way you don't expect them to, just do the best you can and walk humbly with God. And soon, very, very soon, our faith will be sight. What we look at through a glass dimly, very soon we will see face to face. Not because you prayed enough, or you figured out the mysteries of God, but simply because God, in his grace and his mercy, has said, I love you. If you don't know our God, all you gotta do is call on his name and you'll be saved. All you gotta do is say, I know I'm a sinner and you're the savior of sinners. All, all, all you gotta do is tell him you accept his free gift of life. It doesn't mean all your problems will go away and your marriage issues will be solved. What it means is there's hope in your heart and that God will begin to direct your life. And he will allow you to accomplish things in battlegrounds that you never possibly imagined. Not every time. David lived in a cave for 15 years. But he will be faithful to his promises to you just like he was David. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would fight our battles in your power. 
and with one eye on the war and one eye on you. Lord Jesus, I pray you would encourage your people this morning. Let them know how proud you are of them. Give them supernatural peace in their heart. I'm not asking for more wealth. I'm not asking for a bigger car or a better job for them. I'm not even asking for better health this morning. I'm asking for a peace that passes understanding and ability to understand why we have it. An undeniable experience of presence of the Holy Spirit while we fight the wars that you've called us to fight. Make us like David, Father. Not the giant killer, but the guy who lived faithfully in the caves and the guy who did the king thing faithfully, who showed mercy, and even when he was repaid evil for good, he humbly walked with you. In Jesus' name, make us like David. Make us like you. Amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes, and I would like Casey to know that I did it. <laughs>